in the church calendar, there is um, different seasons. You know, you have the season of Lent and Advent. And one that uh, perhaps is not as well recognized or observed is what's often called Eastertide, which is the time in the church calendar between Easter Sunday and uh, Pentecost, which is uh, generally falls in the beginning of June. Uh, during uh, Eastertide, uh, which is really just the month of May for us, we're going to be reflecting on um, resurrection. Um, on Easter Sunday, I, I sort of, uh, sort of, inadvertently introduced a sermon series I hadn't necessarily planned for, but uh, on the whole idea that resurrection um, is the beginning of a new cosmology, and that cosmology is new creation. And to understand the significance of Jesus's resurrection, actually, it requires more than just the event itself, but a whole new cosmology. And so I thought it was unfair for me to just give one Sunday to that. Uh, so uh, in the weeks to come, we're really kind of building out that idea of a cosmology, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that means. But this morning, we return to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 22. Um, the Apostle Paul writes, um, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by the man came death, by a man came also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray this morning we would um, be able to grapple deeply in our hearts and in our imaginations with this great truth that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead makes possible the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we know that forgiveness is our greatest need in life, even though we perhaps don't need it, feel it, or, or recognize it, or think in those terms. But this morning, Lord, I do pray that we would have a sense in our hearts of how great your forgiveness is, and that as an offer to all of us that we can take by faith. So uh, be with us and teach us by your spirit this morning, we pray. Amen. As I said, Jesus' resurrection from the dead marks the beginning of a new cosmology. Uh, resurrection is one of the, I mentioned a couple weeks back how preaching on resurrection is, is usually the most difficult topic to preach on for me, not because it's unpopular, but it's just conceptually really hard to make sense of it beyond after you die, someday you'll be raised from the dead, right? Uh, when you read, say, 1 Corinthians 15, you realize there's a lot going on there, and it's actually one of the most difficult chapters in all the Bible to understand. And... Um, Part of the reason why it's so difficult is because we just don't have categories. Uh, we just don't have the categories to understand what Paul means by resurrection of the dead. And, and, and what he's doing in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's, he's trying, to, trying to work out these categories for the church. And, 
And so that's what we're, we're kind of up to this, in this series, is, is trying to make sense of the, the cosmology of resurrection. And by cosmology, what I mean is this, is a cosmology is, is an overarching um, understanding of how the universe works, all the way from, you know, subatomic particles to galaxies and, and black, star, or, uh, black holes and, all the, and everything in between. Uh, a cosmology is how the universe works. Uh, it's natural laws. What, and and um, again, I used the illustration a couple weeks back of like an operating system, right? If you think of a computer in, in its operating system, that's like its cosmology, if you will. And the thing about um, resurrection is uh, it's, it's this cosmology. Um, it only makes sense within a new creation cosmology. And uh, we, we generally don't possess that. And so, um, you know, we've already started building that out um, in the past couple weeks. Um, but this morning, what I, wanna, I want to um, reflect on is I want to reflect on the relationship between resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. Um, forgiveness of sins is, is, you could call it the cornerstone, <laughs> the ground floor of a new creation cosmology. Um, it is that which is made possible by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And Paul, Paul is very clear about this. Paul is very clear that a denial of the resurrection is, is tantamount to a denial of the whole basis of, of Christian existence. Without resurrection, nothing else follows. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus has not been raised, everything is lost. We are most to be pitied. We are still in our sins. And I think this is important because, again, when we think about resurrection, we tend to only think about it when funerals happen or when death is really close as this kind of thing that will happen in the future. And, and what Paul wants us to know is, no, resurrection matters now. And it is, it's closely tied to um, the forgiveness of sins. Now, another problem we run up against as we think about for forgiveness of sins and resurrection is that when we think about the forgiveness of sins, we think that it's primarily the cross that is the thing that Jesus does that makes the forgiveness of sins possible. And this is absolutely true. And Paul says this at the very beginning of the chapter. He says that according to the scriptures, Jesus died for your sins. This is absolutely true. However, <laughs> Uh, forgiveness of sins is not the, the whole thing. Um, the, the cross, in a sense, removes the debt and the weight of sin. But if Jesus is not raised, there's a sense that we're still in our sins. If there's no resurrection, we're still in our sins. Um, and so what does this mean? And I think sometimes we, we think about the, the way that some people have responded to the way that resurrection fits with the forgiveness of sins as well. Forgiveness of resurrection is kind of like proof of purchase, right? It's sort of like the receipt that God, that Jesus gives to God, right? When he ascends uh, from the grave and then into heaven and says, no, I've paid for these people and so forgive them, right? But this doesn't quite capture the, the deeper meaning of the relationship of resurrection and forgiveness. Because forgiveness of sins marks uh, a cosmological change, in the universe. It is a shift and a change in the universe that Jesus' resurrection makes possible. The forgiveness of sins 
by God is the central accomplishment of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it is the heart and center of the Christian gospel. It is the heart and center of the Christian gospel. Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. You are forgiven, right? Um, this is a very familiar message with, uh, for us. And because of its familiarity, we tend not to reflect too deeply upon it. Um, and oftentimes it doesn't really move us. We sort of take it for granted. We're like, yes, I know that Jesus died for my sins. Yes, I know that I've been forgiven. But again, part of this is I think that we don't really understand the, the cosmology, the new creation cosmology that is behind that statement, your sins are forgiven. And so um, this morning, I really want to sort of work that out for us and help you understand what that means uh, more deeply. Um, as Paul approaches this, this topic of the forgiveness of sins, um, he recognizes, along with the rest of the apostles, that there's, there's, a, there's a world historical shift that takes place um, that the resurrection makes possible, and it is forgiveness. And it fundamentally changes the universe as we know it. And the way he wants to explain this to us is he, he draws on two figures, two men, Adam and Christ, the first Adam and the second Adam. And both of these figures in their person uh, symbolize different cosmologies and alternative histories. And he, 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 he compares and contrasts them. And verse 21, he says, For as by the man, that is Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Right, so the first Adam, by his sin, opens up the doors of death. And the second Adam, by his obedience and resurrection, and opens up a new door that begins to reverse the effects of death in the world. Adam's sin leads to death, Jesus' resurrection, and forgiveness begins to lead to life. Now, I think one of the reasons we have such difficulty grasping the significance of forgiveness in our life is because we vastly underestimate how enmeshed our lives are in the reality of sin and death. We, we underestimate how much our lives are deeply embedded and enmeshed in the reality of sin and death. In, in other words, the cosmology of the old Adam. Uh, to understand the full depth of forgiveness and the forgiveness of sins, what we have to do is we need to reflect more deeply on the relationship between sin and death. Because there's a spiritual unity between sin and death. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul takes us back to the first man who was in the garden and who plunged the human race and in, in all of creation itself into the reality of death by his sin. And in a sense, we all were part of that. We all participated in that. So death exists because of sin. This is a really important um, principle in Christian theology, right? Death exists because of sin. The wages of sin is death. God said to the, the man and the woman, the tree in the, of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Um, 
Now, if you know the story, they ate of the tree, but they did not die, not immediately. Adam actually lived to 930. And so it raises this question, well, what exactly does God mean there by death? Sometimes we often say, well, it meant spiritual death. Well, not exactly. I mean, it certainly meant that. But there's, there's something more comprehensive about death. Adam's sin inaugurates into creation death. And first and foremost, especially with, with Genesis in mind, the garden in mind, death means that we have been separated from the life-giving presence of God. That was the immediate consequence, or one of the final consequences of sin, was that God puts them out of the garden. The garden was a place of eternal life. And the reason the garden was a place of eternal life is because God's special life-giving presence dwelt there. So they were expelled from the garden, they're outside of garden, and death begins to creep in and to take over. And all the curses that God gives, these are, again, all manifestations and expressions of the reality of death. Death takes up residence in our bodies. It takes up residence in our community and our families and society at large. Death is not simply the cessation of biological life. There's a sense in which Death is like a virus that begins to affect everything, which leads to decay and to corruption, kind of like a tsunami of sorts. If you, this large wave that begins to just roll forward and everything in its path, it picks up and consumes. And physical death, as biological creatures, is simply the, the final crowning achievement of death. We, uh, Ernest Becker, who uh, wrote a very famous book in the 1970s called The Denial of Death, very insightful book, and in that book he reflects as a, as a sociologist or philosopher, um, social theorist, he, he claims in that book that death haunts humanity. Death is that reality that hangs over every culture and he has, a, he has a theory of culture formation and social formation that basically says that all cultures, all societies in one way are organized to um, help us deal with the problem of death, to overcome it, to, to make sense of it, or to avoid it, or to deny it. Because the reality of death is it's so terrifying um, that we cannot look at it and honestly face it. And I, I mean, arguably, we've never lived in a culture as like ours that has so, staked so much on the denial of death <laughs> and our capacity to uh, avoid thinking about death or even seeing death um, is, is uh, incredible, despite the pandemic. I want you to think about your lives for a moment as if your life is like a watertight room. submerged under the water and you're born and you're in this epic struggle with death right and as you grow older and perhaps sometimes not even older leaks start coming in right <laughs> kind of springing leaks all over in this wetter tight room and that's death right and it comes in all different forms it can come in the form of bodily pain you know you've got back problems 
There's always, never kind of goes away. It's always this memory. You're always struggling with your body. Or you have, you know, deep anxiety. Or you have people in your life that you've lost to death. Or you've got brokenness in your community, in your relationships. See, that's death, right? See, death is everywhere. It's everywhere. It surrounds us. And the, as you grow older, there's just more and more leaks that spring. And you're always trying to find ways to spring, you know, keep the water from coming too high. But the reality is, is, is that all of us, our rooms, our water trite rooms are eventually taken over and filled with water. And we die. See, that's death. Death is comprehensive. It, it's, it's <laughs> we carry death in our very bodies, and our bodies are constantly fighting off death. From just you fighting off a cold or COVID, to a broken leg, to mental health struggles, that's death. And so we're always trying to plug the holes, so we medicate and we distract and we numb and we try all kinds of things. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, there's a sense that we have naturalized the reality of death. And this makes sense, because death is biological, it's part of life, it's part of being a creature. Um, and yet, we've never been able to fully make our peace with death. We've never been able to be like, you know what, I'm a creature and I'm going to die, and this, you know, my body breaking down, or my mind breaking down, or things going bad, that's just part of life, and I just learned to accept it and embrace it, right? <laughs> Very, very few people are able to do that. No, very few of us are able to really reconcile ourselves with the various things that go wrong with us in our bodies and in the world around us. Because death is not the way things are meant to be, right? Death is this terrifying reality precisely because of sin. This makes it hard. This is why we cannot simply accept death. The sting of death is sin. That's what Paul says later on. The sting of death is sin. Death means that we have been cut off, and we have this sense, from the life-giving presence of God. God is the source of all existence. We don't have anything in ourselves. We do not possess life in ourselves. We live on borrowed time. We live on borrowed breath. Death is coming for all of us. Death is coming for all of you. Someday all of you will die. All those people close to you will die. The wages of sin is death. There is this ironclad, relentless consistency in the unity of sin and death. And so either we deny the connection and we live as if it's not there, or we don't, we don't want to think about it. So for Paul, the forgiveness of sins is everything. Because the forgiveness of sins, what it does is it severs. It severs that, that unity between sin and death. That's the significance of the forgiveness of sins. It means that death has ultimately been defeated. And this is the greatest news imaginable. See, in a denial of death culture that we live in, um, we no longer see God and a relationship with God as, um, as our deepest problem. 
we tend to see, uh, recast all our problems in terms of their social problems, therapeutic problems, political problems. And so we have all those different responses, right? We are, and yet we're, we're anxious and we're depressed or we're lonely or we're alienated, but we tend to look either and think, oh, I've got to heal myself or I've got to change the world. The world is unjust or I need to change as a person. And we don't look deep to the actual true root of the problem. See, all those are symptoms. All those are symptoms. What is the cause? And the cause is sin, and sin and death, right? Fundamental to the biblical understanding of forgiveness is that it is the beginning and the possibility of new life. Sin leads to death, but forgiveness leads to life. In Christ, all shall be made alive. We are reconciled to God through Jesus' death. How much more shall we be saved by his life? That's what Paul says in Romans 5. So forgiveness isn't simply a word of pardon. It is that, absolutely. It is a declaration that your sins have been forgiven. It is, it is a word of pardon, but it's not just that. It is the beginning of something new. It is the doorway into uh, a new cosmology, into a new reality. And that's what it secures for us. Forgiveness secures for us, um, you might think of it this way, it secures for us that garden presence of God that we lost in the fall. See, in, in the Bible, um, this is presumed by what I've said already, but it, that what, what makes things alive? The presence of God makes things alive. Like, in the presence of God, things live, things come alive. So if you've been removed from the presence of God, or God's life-giving presence isn't present, then everything leads to death. And what forgiveness of sins means now is that you have access to the garden presence of God, which is the life-giving presence of God. You still live in this world of sin and death, and yet the Holy Spirit has poured out into your hearts this life-giving presence that makes alive. That makes alive. Forgiveness reconnects us with God in a new way. Um, to put a, an illustration on this, or maybe a little bit more of a... Uh, the story of our sacred reading, the healing of the paralytic man, helps us understand um, a little bit more of the connection between resurrection and forgiveness. Re look at the story. Uh, recall the story. So Jesus is teaching um, in his home, and, uh, or somebody's home, and it's just standing room only. Nobody can get in there. And so here you have four men and their friend who is paralyzed on a mat. And they climb up on top of the roof and they remove the roof and they begin to lower Jesus down, or the, lower the man down into, um, into the room. And it says that Jesus looked up and it says he saw their faith and he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus, um, kind of knowing what uh, the Pharisees and those around them were thinking uh, discerns that uh, the offer of forgiveness is deeply offensive because it presumes um, that he can be like God and forgive sins, right? Now, I want you to think for a moment. When those friends brought um, that man to Jesus, what do you think that they were hoping he would do? Do you, do you think they were hoping that he would forgive his sins? Probably not. He was paralyzed. 
What they were hoping Jesus would do would actually just heal him, right? Yet Jesus, what he does is he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, this, I think, is a very important point that, that in that story, which is that what is the man's deepest problem? It, it wasn't his paralysis. His deepest problem was sin, right? His deepest wound, actually, was his sin, and that's what Jesus addresses. And it's only later that he, Jesus says, now get up and rise and walk. And I think this is a very, again, this is a very important um, principle for us because all of us experience paralysis in different ways, right? We experience death, um, whether it's bodily, whether it's social, whatever it is, and we often think that my greatest problem in life is simply uh, this person or this reality or this thing wrong with me. And Jesus always wants us to know the deepest problem of your life is sin because it deals with God and the ways in which you've been separated from God's life-giving presence. All of our deepest problems in this world are God problems, and forgiveness is the only solution. And again, that is not to say that the, there's not real other problems that are significant, but until we understand that our greatest need in life is for God's forgiveness, we'll go through our lives um, just treating symptoms. And so look at what Jesus does, though, in this story. He offers this man forgiveness, but then he calls him to resurrection. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately he went home. And that word rise is, is erigio, which is another, it's, it's another word for resurrection that's used in the Bible. It's like, rise, stand up. See, the offer of forgiveness in our lives always comes with, with a call to rise. It comes with a call to rise. Stand up. Live into a new reality, into a new creation. Forgiveness isn't simply a transaction. It is a remittance of a debt, but there's much more. It is, again, it's the doorway. It's the doorway into new creation and transformation and healing. Um, an illustration, another illustration for you. Some of you know Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables, or the various versions of the story on Broadway or in film. But that story is such a profound story that illustrates, I think, the relationship of resurrection and forgiveness. Recall the, the main character, Jean Valjean. He, uh, he's in prison for 19 years because he stole a loaf of bread. And when he gets out of prison, um, there is an inspector, Havert, who just sort of looms over his life, reminding him that he's a criminal, <laughs> that he doesn't belong. And he goes everywhere, Jean Valjean, trying to reintegrate, trying to, to find his way back into society, and he just gets rejection, and, and uh, uh, everywhere he goes. But there's this kind bishop, this Christian bishop, that takes him in, and he gives him food, and he gives him wine, and a place to stay. But of course, Jean Valjean, in, a, in his weakness, ends up stealing silverware from the bishop and leaving. Of course, he's eventually found by the inspector, and he's brought back to the bishop from whom he stole. But instead of accusing Jean Valjean and saying, ah, you did, see, you are who you were, he, he, he chides Jean Valjean and he says, why didn't you take the candlesticks too? And then later on, 
when the inspector is gone and things, the bishop says this to Jean Valjean. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. I give you back to God. The bishop forgives Jean Valjean, and his forgiveness comes with an invitation to rise. <laughs> it comes with an invitation to walk in a different pathway with a new identity. And this is what happens, that this act of forgiveness becomes this, this critical turning point in Jean Valjean's life. And he moves to a new town, and he gets a new identity, and he devotes himself to doing good. See, Jesus says something similar to us. He says to us, you no longer belong to sin and death. With my blood I have bought your soul. With my life I have ransomed you from a life of fear and anxiety. And now I give you back to the Father. See, forgiveness comes into our lives as a word of pardon, but it is also of, of a, a word of creative power of creative power. Jesus' words of forgiveness to us when they're received with faith are transforming words. They're life-transforming words that create something new. And what it means is this, is that forgiveness liberates us. It liberates us from having a future that is determined by all the bad things we did in the past. All the screw-ups, all the mistakes, which sometimes for many of us we live into as our destiny. You did this thing, you screwed up. This is who you are, you might as well embrace it. Forgiveness breaks that. It says no. Again, I love, I love the words um, of uh, Brian Stevenson who uh, defends uh, criminal um, youth and um, imprisonment for murder and things like that. He comes to these young men and he says, you are more than the worst thing you've ever done. You are more than the worst thing you've ever done. That is such a powerful word. Because again, when we do bad things and we screw up and we make mistakes, we internalize this identity and, and we say, well, this is who I am and this is my future. And forgiveness says no, because again, that is the logic of the unity of sin and death and forgiveness comes in and it breaks that unity and says, no, you can be set free and you can start new. But forgiveness doesn't, in a sense, like bring us back to like a blank slate. Okay, start again. I'm gonna do it right this time. It's not, you know, that's not what forgiveness is. It isn't simply, oh, I've got a blank slate and I can try again and I can do better now. No, it's actually much more profound than that. It is that you have a new story. <laughs> you have a new story. You don't belong to the old Adam. You belong to the new Adam. And in the new Adam, you are a son and you are a daughter that is beloved by the Father. And that Jesus' story becomes your story. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His destiny and his future, his resurrection, will someday be your resurrection, your future, your destiny. One of the, <clears throat> the refrains of Jesus and the angels after the resurrection, again and again, is don't fear. Don't fear, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is, um, fear of course is the thing, the emotion that most grips us in the face of real death. When death is really there, um, we're afraid. We, 
Death is scary. And Jesus says, don't fear. Don't be afraid. A life lived in the light of resurrection is a life lived, the possibility of a life lived without anxiety and fear of death. And why is this the case? It's the case because the resurrection means that nothing can be taken from you that matters, that will not someday be given back. That is the, that is the truth of the resurrection. Nothing that matters can be taken from you that Lord will someday restore to you. Death is real. It is real, but it is no longer possess ultimate power, ultimacy over your life. It is no longer the final word. Death is no longer the final word. Jesus has broken the unity of spiritual, uh, the unity of sin and death by his resurrection. He has bankrupted that old cosmology. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we give, we give you thanks that um, you tasted death and you went all the way down into the grave, into hell itself, and you defeated death. And that death no longer has the final word. It has a loud voice in our lives in many different ways. And yet, by your Spirit, you have poured out resurrection life into our hearts. And we know that we can taste of that life in your presence. Lord, I pray this morning, wherever we find ourselves, whatever front of death our lives are uh, struggling with or confronted with, may the hope and the reality of resurrection be real and be something that we can taste and that could give us peace. Peace and freedom from the fear and the anxiety of death. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.